0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Our scripture
1: for today comes from John chapter 16, verses 12 through 33. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? And because I am going to the Father? So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. When she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, "'Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, "'he will give it to you. "'Until now you have asked nothing in my name. "'Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. "'I have said these things to you in figures of speech. "'The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you "'in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly "'about the Father. "'In that day you will ask in my name, "'and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father "'on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, "'because you have loved me and have believed "'that I came from God.' I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone yet i am not alone for the father is with me i have said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation but take heart i have overcome the world all right
0: john 16 go there with me we're going to be starting in verse 12 but i'm not going to get there just yet i want to introduce it and uh say that you know this is the final discourse this is jesus's farewell before he departs and leaves and i want to start this sermon with the last verse of this passage. I want to begin with the end in mind because Jesus is promising us something in this passage, and we need to know how we put ourselves in position and what he has given us to access that allows us to have what he has promised us. So go to verse 33. And Jesus, this is where he lands. This is what he says, "'I have said these things to you that you may have peace.'" In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We've already uh, studied John chapter 14. He says a similar, similar thing there in verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So Jesus promises his followers peace. a a radical kind of peace, a peace that doesn't make sense because we're undergoing tribulation, because we're undergoing the darkness of the world, yet he promises to grant us a deep and abiding peace. So the question is, how do we get there? How do we take that promise and, and allow our lives to be ruled and reigned by the peace of Jesus that is out of this world? How is it possible to live like that? And so there's three points for today. First, we make it through the world with peace by reading the Bible. We make it through the world with peace through answered prayer. We make it through the world in peace, with peace by the victory of Jesus. Not flashy points today. very straightforward, but they're good ones, all right? By reading the Bible, answered prayer, and the victory of Jesus. That's how we're going to persevere with peace through through the world. So let's go to verse 12. Talk about reading the Bible. Jesus says to his disciples, I still have many things to say to you, the you apostles, these 12, these disciples, but you cannot bear them now. What Jesus is saying there is that these guys, they are not capable of hearing all that is about to happen. I mean, Jesus has hinted throughout the course of this conversation that he's about to die, that he's going to resurrect, that he's going to send to the Father, he's going to send the holy spirit, but they just really don't have the ability to understand these things right now because it's so in contradiction to everything they've ever imagined, and they're not filled with the Holy Spirit yet. The Holy Spirit has not been given to them to open up their minds so they can read the Old Testament and understand how Jesus's death and resurrection and ministry and ascension, how all these things have fulfilled the entire Old Testament. They just don't get it. It's not going to make sense to them. So Jesus says, I I can't tell you everything. I wish I could. I can't tell you everything because you can't bear it now. And, And just think about this. These guys can't receive what's about to happen to Jesus. Imagine if Jesus were to tell them plainly and in detail, yeah, you guys are going to lead the church. You guys are going to be the seat of this new uh, global movement called the church. Their heads would just explode. They're not ready to receive it yet because they have not been given the Holy Spirit to understand these things yet. So Jesus says down in verse 25, jump there with me. He says to them, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. So Jesus has only alluded to things. He's only used figures of speech up to this point because their minds just can't take it. But, verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, what will happen? What will happen when this special gift of the Holy Spirit arrives and fills them? What's going to happen is the Holy Spirit is going to illuminate the Old Testament, as he awakens and illuminates their minds. They're going to be able to make sense of everything that's about to happen that they're going to witness, which in this moment, it's going to absolutely derail them. But when they're given the Holy Spirit, it's all going to make sense. So understand the Holy Spirit like this. What he does is when he takes up residence in our lives, and when he regenerates our minds, we can come to the Bible, especially like the Old Testament, and it's like the Holy Spirit is a door that begins to crack open and, and, sh- and shine light into a dark room. The Old Testament's like a dark room for a long time. There's a lot of mystery. There's a lot of cryptic language. What exactly does this mean? What exactly is it anticipating? The disciples think they'd have the Old Testament nailed down, but really they're just walking around in a dark room. When the Holy Spirit comes, he opens that door and light floods the room. The Old Testament finally makes sense because of the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says in verses 13 through 15 as we keep on reading. The Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth, he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Here's what, here's what this means The Spirit is going to proceed, move outward from the Father and the Son to reveal all that is bound up, all the revelation that is bound up in Jesus's life, his words, and his ministry. And then Jesus, as we understand Jesus through the Holy Spirit, he reveals the Father. Like we know who the Father is because Jesus has made him vividly clear. And then what's going to happen is the apostles, the New Testament authors through the same Holy Spirit are going to write down all of that revelation in Jesus, which makes clear who the Father is. And then we, with illumined minds by the Holy Spirit, are going to read that New Testament, the Scriptures, have Jesus revealed to us, who reveals to us the Father, so we get it. In a, so you see like the sequence of events here? like When we come to the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit, who has residence in us, allows us to understand Jesus, so we understand the Father. So if you want to understand the Father, who He is, what He wants, how He feels about you, what His plans and purposes are, you need to understand who Jesus is. And you only understand who Jesus is if you come to the Scriptures and read it a lot and with commitment. But you only understand the Scriptures if you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is saying here, This sequence of necessary events if we are to understand who the Father is. So it's essential. What I'm saying is what Jesus is, is portraying here is it's essential that we are committed to the Word when we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, because that is like the passageway to understanding the Son and the Father and everything he wants for us and wills for us and who he is. So the Bible, in other words, <laughs> it's really, really important. And I know, um, it's like, why are, we, why are we spending a whole sermon, a whole, a whole half of a sermon talking about the Bible? Like, every Christian knows they ought to read the Bible. Every Christian knows that this is like essential. But I'm just telling you, everything, the Scripture is central to your relationship with God. If you want an intense, spiritual, meaningful relationship with God, you have to be committed, devoted to reading your Bible. So let me do a quick biblical theology just to sell you on this, how amazing it is what you have in your hands, either in print or on your phone, all right? Let's do a quick biblical theology of God's Word, okay? God's Word. Hebrews 1 says this, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God speaks through the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us, revealed who he is through his son, Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So also, God spoke the world into existence. All right, so here's what this means. In the Old Testament, God revealed himself through the creation of the world, meaning you can look at, you know, the, the world he's given us and kind of get an impression of who God is, how orderly and wise and beautiful and creative and good he is. But not just that, he also spoke to us through the prophets, through their message, through their utterance, we understand who God is. And now we understand who he is through Jesus, his life, his teachings, his way. So that's why Hebrews 1 continues and says this in verses 3 and four, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He is God. If you want to know who God is, look no further than Jesus. He upholds the universe by the word of his mouth, and after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, meaning God's work is finished. His act of revelation is finished, and all that revelation, that finished work of God, is now documented and given to us than what we call the Holy Scriptures. It's in your hands right now. So 2 Timothy says this about the Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is breathed out by God. That word breathed out by God, it's actually one word in the Greek, and it literally means God breathed. And the word for spirit, the word for, for breath there is actually spirit. So it's like, you know how God spoke through the Holy Spirit to create the world and inspired the prophets of old through the Holy Spirit to reveal himself? Here, What you have in your hands, God, did that same very act in creating what we call the Scriptures. He spoke it, inspired it into existence through the Holy Spirit. So it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we might be equipped, complete for every good work. So what we have in the Scriptures is infallible, dependable, sufficient, and authoritative because it's been inspired by God through the Holy Spirit like this, uh, I'm trying to make, 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 make sense of this, it's so important, how Jesus revealed the Father in his living, in his doing, in his speaking, as Hebrews 1 says. The scriptures now are performing the same thing for us. They are revealing in a vivid and clear way who we're dealing with and what he's been planning and what his great plan of redemption is. So if you want to have a relationship with God, If you're filled with the Holy Spirit and your mind is illuminated, you have to be committed to this. This is the passageway to having a vibrant, intense walk with God. And just so you know, the New Testament authors, uh, you know, I know they're men, I know they're men, but they're inspired, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write infallible, authoritative text, and they understood themselves to be doing this. Like, they consciously understood that what they were writing was on equal uh, level with Jesus in the Old Testament. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, when he's teaching about divorce and remarriage and singleness, he says, Jesus said this, but now I say this, putting himself on equal standing with Jesus' teachings. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.13 that his words are not mere human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. He says in 1 Corinthians 14 that his are commands of the Lord. He says in 2 Corinthians 13 that Christ is speaking in him. Peter tells his readers to remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So Peter understands not just him, but everyone who's writing the New Testament to be speaking on behalf of God. He writes in Second Peter that Paul's writing is equal to Old Testament scripture. Like he understands Paul to be hard to understand, but authoritative and inspired, just like the Old Testament. So all in all, what I'm trying to just like plant in your imagination and in your heart right now is we need to appreciate what we have in our hands. This is the way we have intimacy and revelation of who God is, and there's a lot of things, of course, that stem out of that, a lot of other spiritual disciplines that stem out of that, but central to our walk with God is a deep devotion to His Word, a deep devotion to His Word. You know, it should really stun us that God has disclosed Himself to us through His Word, and it's a gift that we have it have his written word. Uh, We have the full and final revelation of God. In fact, uh, 1 Peter 1 says that the prophets in the Old Testament who heard from God and spoke on behalf of God and the angels in God's presence right now in the heavenlies are in in a less favorable position than we are because we have the final full revelation of God in his scripture. And so we think to ourselves, man, if I could just hear from God directly like the prophets did, that'd be incredible. Or if I got to see what angels saw in the very heavenly realms, oh my gosh, that would just, that would change everything for me. And they're saying, like the prophets and the angels would reply and say, we're jealous of you. We wish, we wish we had what you had, this full, final revelation of God that makes sense because you're indwelt by the very Spirit of God to awaken and illuminate your minds so it all makes sense. Like, they're jealous of us. Isn't that incredible? So if you want an intense spiritual walk with God, you have to have devotion to His Word. Listen, um, every deep and meaningful relationship in your life, always requires careful study. It always requires you to spend a lot of time. And not just passively, like um, thoughtlessly, but intentional time, right? Careful study. You can imagine how my marriage would work with Rebecca if I never learned her quirks, never learned her idiosyncrasies, never knew what made her tick. I know those things, because I've carefully studied her over the last 10 years of our marriage, nine years of our marriage, right? Any, if you want a meaningful relationship with God, you got to be committed to careful study in his word. And I wish I could sit down with each and every one of you and show you how to read the Bible. That's, I know that's a huge conversation. That might be some of the, the reason why you're intimidated to read the Bible. But here's, let me just say this to you. Just begin You you just got to begin. And at first it feels like you're walking through a dark uh, house in the middle of the night. Like when we we, uh, moved into our our new house a year ago uh, and I was getting up with the kids in the middle of the night, like I would like run into walls and stuff because I didn't know. I didn't know know the layout, you know, it it was all new to me. But a year into it, I can fly through that baby now, you know what I mean? (laughs) And that's what it's like reading the Bible. At first it's like you're tripping, you don't really understand, a lot of questions, it doesn't make sense, but give it a full year, it's going to get better you just got to begin. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field who a man in his joy sold all that he had to go out and buy that field. I think that's a really good illustration for reading the Bible. There's this treasure hidden in the text And you have to dig and dig and dig, and it might require you to go out and and make some sacrifices, but enjoy, you do whatever it takes to dig and dig and dig because you know there's hidden treasure beyond these words, within these words, right? The one great threat against you being committed to life with God and his word. It, it, It probably isn't that you don't know how to do it, it probably isn't that you don't like to read. <laughs> it's that we love distraction. We, we are in an age of distraction. Aldous Huxley, in his book, A Brave New World, he, it's, a, no, it's a, a fictional novel, but he has this line in there that he anticipates that someday society will spiral out of control, not because of tyranny, but because we will fail to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions we love to scroll. We love to watch. We love to veg for hours because we just, you know, we love, that, we love pleasure. We love escaping. And so the kingdom of God, if you want life in the kingdom, you have to be committed to breaking off those patterns of apathy and vegging and leisure and be committed resolutely to getting in his word and digging for that treasure so if you want the peace of Jesus, he's promised his peace. You'll have tribulations, but take our I've overcome the world. My peace I give to you. You want that peace? Let's be committed to his word and take up and read his word. So the spirit will inspire scripture. And we, by the spirit, we can fellowship now with God, the Father, and God, the Son, and persevere in this world with peace. So now we're going to transition to answer prayer. But this transition is a little hard because we're talking about reading the Bible We're going to talk about reading the Bible just a little bit longer as we get an answer prayer because the only reason we can move through life with confidence that our prayers will be answered is because we know with certainty who God is and what He wants. We pray according to that because we have His full final revelation in His Word. So we're going to talk a little bit more about His Word as we get ready to talk about prayer, okay? So I'm going to read verses 16 through 21 here in just a second. It's a dense passage. So, I want to just tell you what it means before we get into it. So, as you read it, it makes sense to you. Okay? So, Jesus is about to say to his apostles that he's going to die, then rise, and they will see him again. But you're going to see that the disciples, they still don't understand because they don't have the capacity to hear his words. They're too entrenched in their idea of what Jesus should do, that they simply cannot receive what he is saying. And so they read the Old Testament one way, Jesus is fulfilling it a different way. They can't understand because they don't have the spirit to illuminate their minds to make sense of it all. So Jesus addresses their questions by illustrating what they're about to experience. And the illustration is that the dread of Jesus' death and the happiness of his resurrection is like uh, the mother in labor, the, the pain and agony of a mother in labor, but then the joy of meeting her baby a terrible time for a moment, and then incredible thereafter. And the main point of, of what Jesus is about to say here is not simply that their sorrow will go away when they lay their eyes on Him again and see Him in, in, in resurrected body. That's, that's at a minimum. But what Jesus is trying to, to teach His disciples and teach you and I is that the reason why they're going to be like that mom who's in agony and then has joy when they have their baby is because Jesus' resurrection and His ascension is going to earn for them and for us, the Holy Spirit's indwelling and awakening and illumination of our minds so we can actually understand what's going on, okay? So let's read now, verses 16 through 21. A little while, you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. There's Jesus' death and his resurrection. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is it that he says to us? A little while, and you will will not see me in it. Again, a little while, and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were, asked, they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. See, they just can't understand. They're thinking in human categories. They're thinking in an earthly sense. Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, That I'm what I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will le- weep and lament, but the world will rejoice you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for, that, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So, Jesus is going to resurrect, and it's all going to be okay. Why is it going to be okay? Why? Verses 22 and 23. So, also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, he says to his apostles, to you and I, you will ask nothing of me. The reason why they will ask nothing of Jesus, they'll stop pestering him with these questions and misunderstanding him is because they'll have the Holy Spirit. It'll all make sense, and therefore when it all makes sense, what's going to happen? Joy is going to flood their heart. They're going to they're have the purpose of their existence Makes sense to them. They're going to have a real vibrant relationship with Jesus even though he's no longer there physically. So they're going to have joy because they're going to have the Holy Spirit taking up residence in their minds and in their hearts that makes sense of everything. So, because of the illumination of the Spirit into the meaning of Scripture, we will lack nothing. We will lack nothing. We will ask him of nothing. We will have everything we need in him. We'll have no more questions. We'll have all the explanation and we'll live with a joy that cannot be taken away. That's what happens because Jesus has ascended. Scripture does that for us. It gives us that contentment that we no longer have questions. So one of the most troubling questions I'm asked as a pastor is what is God's will for my life? His will is revealed in Scripture through the Spirit. One of the greatest desires in this room is for relationship. But God invites us into relationship with Him through His Word by the Spirit. We all need food and we all want riches. And God's word is our daily bread and more precious than gold as we take up and read it by the Spirit. That's what Jesus is saying here. You're no longer going to need anything. I'm going to give you everything that you're ever going to need as long as you have the Holy Spirit who's, in your, who's taking up residence in you. So we'll ask nothing of Jesus. It'll all make sense. We'll have a joy that is enduring because of his resurrection and the Spirit and the Scripture, okay? But then look what he says next. And this is where it's kind of confusing until you press into it he says in verse 23 as you keep on reading, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have, has, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. So the confusing thing is Jesus has just said that we'll ask nothing of him, and now he turns around and says, now you get to ask. Ask whatever you want. Ask in my name, and the Father's going to give it to you. And so it seems like a contradiction here. Well, it's actually a paradox. A paradox is an apparent contradiction until you press deeper into it. What Jesus is teaching here is because of the Spirit's illumination, we will know God. We will know what God wants. So that because we know who God is and because we know what He wants, what He's passionate about, what His will is, what plan He's unfolding, Jesus then says, go and ask God to do exactly that, to do His will to do his purposes, to do what's in his heart, to do what he has planned since ages before. And notice what Jesus says, when you do this, when you ask and receive, your joy will be full. So the joy that we had because we have the scriptures and this relationship with God where we, our questions are answered and all makes sense, we have joy that can't be taken away, but then when we go and ask God to act according to his revealed will, that joy that he gives us, it levels up to a full joy. Does that make sense? Y'all tracking with me? It's incredible. We know who God is. We know what he wants. We know what he wants to do and intends to do. Jesus says, go and ask in my name for him to do it. Go and ask, and you will receive it, and your life will be characterized by profound joy. Who's in on that? Who wants that? And we get it through answered prayer. That's the peace he wants to give us as we move through this world, that God is with us, and he's performing his will as we ask in Jesus' name. So here's all I want to do. Let's break this down because we want this church to be a church that's expectant and confident as we pray. Okay, so here's what Jesus teaches us about prayer. First, if you're taking notes, get ready. First, there's a condition, a qualification. He says in verse 23, ask in my name. In verse 24, ask in my name, in my name. We pray in Jesus's name. And just quickly, because we've talked about this a lot, you can look in the past weeks at this, just to refresh you about what this means. Praying in Jesus' name should first remind us that it's only by Jesus that we can approach the Father. Like, I don't go before God in confident expectation that He's going to do what He has willed to do and wants to do because I've achieved anything, because my righteousness is somehow impressive to Him. It's not. That's it's com- the complete opposite. But you know who is impressive to, G- to God? Who has earned his favor forever? His own son. So I'm praying in Jesus's name, not my name. Jesus, my elder brother, who has saved me and redeemed me and given me his righteousness. I'm praying on his basis, on the basis of his name, not my own. Second, the reason what, what it means to pray in the name of Jesus is it should bring to mind all the promises that find their yes in Jesus. In Second uh, Corinthians one, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. So, what has God promised? That's why that's why you need to know Scripture. That's why you need to be committed to his Scripture, so you know what God has said. I will do. I'm not a liar. I will do this if you ask in Jesus' name. Praying the promises of God, and then thirdly, what it means to pray in Jesus' name is it's a heart check. Like, am I praying for my glory? Am I praying for my convenience? Am I praying because I want something to happen for my sake to make my life easier, to make my name renowned, whatever it might be? Or am I praying according to Jesus' name, so that his name is exalted? Not so that my agenda is fulfilled, not so that our empire is built, but that Jesus' agenda is forwarded and his empire is built. We pray in Jesus' name and it's a heart check for us. So those are the the conditions. It's not because of me, it's because of Jesus. It's according to God's promises, it's for his glory, not mine. And if that is the basis of your prayer, the, cri- the foundation of your prayer, then let it rip. You know, go for it. Pray. Pray with bold expectations. That's the second thing. Here's the command, right? That first, there's a condition. Now there's a command. Ask. He says, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give you. Until now, you've, you've asked nothing in my name. Asking to receive it that your joy may be full. When you see a word appear over and over and over in just like two sentences, you know it's a pretty big, big deal. We are commanded to ask God to do what he has said he wants to do in his revealed will. Like, do you pray like that? Do you pray for God, cry out to God in agonizing prayer God, do what you have said you will do. It's not my reputation that's at stake. God, it's yours. It's not my glory that's at stake. It's yours. You've promised to do this. Will you act, God? Now, we tend to tone this down because we think it's irreverent or we think it's entitlement. But I just want to remind you, there are so many instances throughout Scripture where we are told to ask. Psalm 2. God says this to the Davidic king, who is Jesus. And now we are inheriting this, this line from Jesus because we're co-heirs with Christ. Psalm 2. Ask and I will give the nations to you. Ask and I'll give them all to you. Luke Luke 11. The Father gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Matthew 7, ask and it will be given. If you are evil and know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will you, Father in heaven, who is good, give to those who ask Him. James 4, you desire, do not have, so you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Ephesians 3, now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can, what? Ask or imagine. In Luke 18, the parable of the widow who won her case by beating down with pleading the unjust judge. And Jesus says, I want you to pray to me like that. But just remember the difference is, I'm not an unjust judge. I'm a good father. and I love to give good gifts to my children. So we're not asking, we're commanded to ask, but we're not asking a begrudging, stingy father. We're asking a generous, more than enough heart of love. Father. And that's the third thing we need to realize about prayer is there's an object, our Father. Ask the Father in my name. Ask the Father in my name. Now, I don't need to expound on this much because Jesus does in verses 25 through 27. Read with me. Here's who your Father is. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I'll no longer speak to you in, the f- in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. So here's who the Father is. You ready? Plain, plain speaking. In that day, you'll ask in my name. And I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from the Father. So we're not praying in Jesus' name because it's like a, um, a talisman, or like a rabbit's foot or something like that, that we're just like hoping works and we like somehow convince the Father in heaven to favor us and do what we're asking of him. Jesus says, that's not why I'm asking you to pray in my name. That's not necessary because the Father himself loves you. That is incredible. That's who our Father is. We pray to this kind of Father. He's not mad. He's not upset. He's not fatigued and exhausted. He loves you. Now this, being a dad, has taught me more about prayer than anything else. (laughs) Because like my kids, they exhaust me. Uh, amen, amen. Uh, some of the kids like <laughs> yeah. She gets it. She probably could teach us a lot about prayer. And you know what? Like, I, I'm trying to be a good dad, but the reason I'm not a perfect dad is because I'm tired and I'm limited. I only got so much time. I got stuff to do. I'm constrained in just the human limitations of life, right? God has none of our limitations. He's not weary. He's not distracted you're not interrupting him. He's outside of space and time. you're, You're not frenzying him. You're not stressing him out. You might be frenzied and stressed, so go to him because he's not. So you pray. God has none of our flaws. Just remember this. The most powerful man in the world resides in the Oval Office. And you have to be pretty important and special to set up a meeting with him probably months in advance. But you know who needs no meeting? His child. His child can walk into the Oval Office whenever they please. And you and I are children of God Almighty. Ask, and you will receive. Fourth, there's a promise. He will give it to you in verse 23. verse 24, you will receive. Now again, we read these lines. We really try to tone it down. Like, surely surely he doesn't mean this. Like, we we can pray with expectation that God is going to come through. Surely he doesn't mean this, because it's irreverent. But actually, it's irreverent to doubt that God will keep his promises. And um, we think it's usually entitled, like we're a brat or something, that to, to expect to answer prayer. But we are entitled to answer prayer. It's our birthright us, as his children. I just finished this book called Calling on the Name of the Lord. It's this massive book that just like, walks through every single instance of prayer in the whole entire Bible, from Cain and Abel that time to the book of Revelation. And the author was just basically proving his point, documenting that prayer Centrally, all throughout the Bible is calling upon God to do to do to act according to His promises, to do what He has said He would do, to come through on His word. Now, why don't we think about prayer like this? Expectant, bold, confident, prepared to receive what God wants to give us. Why don't we do this? It's because we, in our Western culture in the 21st century, don't understand covenant when you are in covenant with God, he has promised that he will come through and he must because he is a God of covenant. See, when you're in a covenant relationship, each end must uphold their end of the bargain. But the the amazing thing about God's covenant with us is he initiated it and it's on his terms and he has sealed it by the blood of his own son. So like, we're not going to mess it up. We're not going to do anything that's going to cause God to back out of this covenant. He's in it, and he knows who he's in it with. And so we're allowed, just hear me here, we're allowed to hold God to his own covenant. We're allowed to believe that God's going to come through because his covenant is so strong because it was ratified with Jesus' perfect divine blood. In marriage, Rebecca is allowed to ask me to act according to my promises, and that's not ridiculous. That's not um, irreverent. That is standard. So, let me review this. There's a condition, Jesus' name. There's a command, ask. There's an object, our Father. And there's a promise, you will receive. You know, a weak prayer life, which I'd say most of us struggle with, it's, it's really a modern day problem. Christians throughout history, uh, if there's anything that Christians have been known for, it's that they are a people of radical prayer. In fact, in Acts chapter 9, there's two instances where Christians, they don't call themselves Christians, they don't call themselves followers of Jesus, although they they do, but not in that instance. In this instance, in Acts chapter 9, Christians self-understood themselves as people who call upon the name of God. Like, that's what Christianity was. It was, we're the group of people who pray fervently according to the name of God. And and one um, commentator who I like uh, for the book of Acts, Joel Green, says this. One of the names given to Jesus' disciples in Acts is those who call upon the name of the Lord. This descriptive label identifies those who believe in the name of Jesus. By using this designation for followers of Jesus, Luke thus indicates how fundamental prayer is to the Christian experience. For it marks the beginning of one's incorporation into the messianic community and designates one of the practices that speaks of the faithfulness within that community. Christians were just known as people who prayed according to the name of the Lord, Crying out to God to do what he has promised to come through on his word. That's been the brand of Christianity for centuries, for millennia. And so our uh, unbelief and timidity in prayer, it's really a modern problem, not a historic problem. And so we should return, I think, to this historic understanding of prayer. So, how are we going to make it and have peace in the world? Through his word and through answered prayer. And now, lastly, through the victory of Jesus why do we read the Bible with expectation and devotion? Why do we step up and pray with boldness? It's because Jesus has won. It's because Jesus has sealed these promises with his own perfect obedience. So look at 29 through 32. His disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative language. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And just even in their response, like, they still don't get it because Jesus said before this, I'm coming from God and going to God, but all they hear is, oh, you came from God. Like, they still don't get it. Sidebar. Um, Jesus answered them and said this, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and leave me alone. Can you imagine that? your friend's abandoning you in your darkest moment, being completely alone in your darkest moment. That's what's about to happen to Jesus. He knows it's coming. But look what he says, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Now that's a really, really dense sentence. We could spend a lot of time talking about it, but what you should understand from that sentence, I am not alone, the Father is with me, is that Jesus knows he has the Father's favor, the Father's presence always his promise to him because he is the perfect righteous son. In, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David has promised that one of his future descendants will always have the father's favor, will always be called son because that son will be perfectly obedient. Jesus is that son. He is that future descendant from David. He secures by his righteousness, perfection, obedience, the father's love and favor and approval. Now you see this line, I'm never alone. The Father's with me. And again, there might be a contradiction in your mind that pops up, and it's this. Jesus on the cross says, my Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? So for a moment, in a sense, the Father withdrew. The The Father's favor, right, left. Why is that? It's because that's what we deserved. That's what we earned. We have built our lives upon God. Get out of here. God, leave me alone. I want to be alienated from you. I want to to build my life centrally on my own claims and on my own values and priorities. You can stay out of it. And God says, okay, you can get what you want. But by God's grace, Jesus got what we wanted. Jesus got what we deserved. And it gets better than that because we got what Jesus earned. The Father's favor. The Father's unmerited, unconditional love forever and ever and ever. So, Every time you pick up and read God's word, every time you enter the secret place to pray, you are never wasting time because the gospel promises that God loves you, is with you, will show up and meet you there. It's not not futile. It's not a waste of time. Every time you pick up and read God's word, every time you enter into the secret place to pray, You should never lack confidence because the gospel is the basis of your standing before God, not yourself. And so I just want to inspire you today to read and to pray. And when we do these things, we will receive the peace of Jesus that he has promised us. But the gospel is the fuel to your obedience. You go forward picking up and reading, hitting your knees and praying because it will not be futile. Jesus, by his perfect obedience, has won for us all the promises of God, they find their yes in Him. Do you know how many people, just stay with me one minute longer, do you know how many people have been changed forever by picking up and reading God's Word? Martin Luther picked up Psalms and started reading Psalms, and it was, it was the impetus for the Reformation. It changed everything for him, and that changed the world. Saint Augustine living a life of hedonism until he was in his early 30s, heard a child in the distance saying, pick up and read, pick up and read, playing some game. He picked up his Bible and read Romans and it struck him to the heart and he was changed forever. You just never ever know what can happen when you go to God's word with expectation. It's not a waste of time. You know how many people have been changed and changed the world through prayer? My goodness, the church has survived by prayer. So how will you make it in the world with peace the same way they did by the Spirit's illumination and because of the resurrection reading Scriptures strengthened by Scriptures and asking in Jesus' name to do what Scripture has said. Let's pray together. Our great God we come to you now and just ask that you would give us a fervent longing for relationship with you, that you would make us thirst for your word, that we would consider your word to be our lifeline and our necessary anchor of our day. God, I pray that you would put in our hearts a vision for prayer, that we would cease to pray faithless, timid prayers, that we would begin to pray your promises and for your glory in the name of your Son who has earned your favor for us, that we would pray with boldness and expectation and move out from that point with obedience, knowing that you're going to meet us where we are at because you say that you will give what we ask. Thank you for the victory we have in Jesus. Thank you for him earning our favor, your favor for us forever so that we will never be forsaken, but always heard and always met with. In your name we pray, Jesus, amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.